So I'm reading, uh, starting in Revelation 1, uh, I think it's verse 9, and then also the personal letter that Jesus gave to uh, Pergamum. So, yeah, the starting Revelation 1, 9, the, the opening vision that Jesus gave to John about himself. <clears throat> I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that, that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one, like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head was like and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, where it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now the letter to uh, Pergamum, Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have, have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone <clears throat> and a new name written on the stone, 
which no one knows but he who receives it. Thanks, Jesse. Well, we are into our series in the Revelation. Uh, let's see, I think we're five weeks in, and we've been kind of unpacking as we've introduced this amazing letter, as well as prophecy, as well as apocalypse. Now, for those who've been tracking for a while, is apocalypse a bad thing? No. What are you talking about? All the blockbusters say it is. Those are that make the best movies, right? The big meltdown at the end. The big apocalyptic, you know, apocalypse now, that kind of stuff. But that's not what the word meant, right? The word meant, in its original meaning, a revelation. Or, as we depicted it, the pulling back of a curtain to show that there's something there that was previously hidden from our eyes. And so, the very opening phrase of the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The pulling back of a curtain on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the one pulling back the curtain, but he's also the one standing behind the curtain. And we talked about how uh, whatever situation these churches are in, these Christians are in, the difficulties that they're experiencing, whatever experiencing we're experiencing in life, uh, the most important thing we can have is an apocalypse of Jesus, where the curtain is pulled back, and we are able to see that right in the middle of our mess, Jesus is present. Right in the middle of what's going on in your family, what's going on in your work, what's going on in your health. Jesus is there right in the middle, even though you can't see it. And that's the purpose of this whole letter, is to show these struggling Christians scattered around, and in particular localized in these seven congregations, that Jesus is present with them right in the middle of their mess. So Jesus shows up and gives them an apocalypse. And uh, as he does that, the whole letter is an apocalypse. The whole letter was sent to these seven churches and kind of follows the mail route. And it goes around delivering this whole message to these seven churches. But what Jesus does is really unique. At the start of his letter, the whole thing, 1 to 22, he like writes a memo, a post-it note, as it were, right at the start of Revelation. And he kind of personalizes the whole letter for each individual congregation. Unique, understanding their circumstance, their reality, the struggles they're going through, the problems they're having. Jesus personalizes the whole letter of Revelation. And today, we're in the third of those personal notes, as it were, that are right at the start of Revelation. So we're going to dive into that today. On your, in your bulletin, there's an insert with the scripture text. I chose the English Standard Version today because I like the play on words that are there that are lost in some translations, but we switch up translations around here because, well, that's just a fun thing to do, isn't it? And so uh, there it is on your screen, or maybe you have a Bible, and there's some Bibles in your, in your uh, pews, and hey, most of you have smartphones, and you can use your Bible on that too, as long as you're not checking Facebook too many times. <laughs> we have a love-hate relationship with tolerance and intolerance, don't we? You know, on the one hand, tolerance is amazing. I'm thankful for people who are tolerant to my bad jokes or my idiosyncrasies. Aren't, aren't you? Thankful for those people who are tolerant? Yes. So, so tolerance is a, you know, can be a real virtue, and, and, and we recognize that as we kind of go through life and as we are maybe bumping around, whether it's a store or workplace, we're thankful for those people who are willing to tolerate us. Or maybe we feel like people should be more thankful 
of our willingness to tolerate them. I don't know, but the reality is tolerance can be a real virtue. And we, we kind of see that societally and as we kind of drift along. It allows us to maybe live at peace uh, with people who see things differently because we allow for a degree of that. But let's be honest. Our tolerance only goes so far, doesn't it? How tolerant are you of too much salt in the food? Be honest. Are you very tolerant of that? Would you be tolerant if day after day the food was just way too salty? How tolerant are you of loud music from the neighbors all night long? Anyone? Note to those of you who do play the music all night long. But more than that, we're not tolerant of, of other things, right? We're not tolerant toward domestic violence. We shouldn't be. We're not tolerant toward hateful language. We're, we're not tolerant toward, uh, you know, crimes against innocent people, men, women, children. We're not tolerant of those things. So we value tolerance as a society, but only to a point. And that's true for everybody. In spite of the fact that as a society, we kind of hold up tolerance as the ultimate virtue. The reality is we all have a threshold, right? We all have a spot where we say, Tolerant up to this point, and then I have now become intolerant. No matter who we are, no matter what a background, what our spiritual background, if you're here today and just kind of exploring who Jesus is, you're not too sure, you have a threshold for intolerance. And, and people of different spiritual backgrounds, different places in their journey, we all have a threshold. Some of the struggles, of course, is when my threshold isn't quite the same as yours, Right? When I think, I think you should tolerate me a little more than you want to. But the question is, what is that threshold, right? Where does your tolerance end and your intolerance begin? And I suppose, depending on the subject matter, depending on what's going on, uh, you may be able to say, that's the line. There it is. That's, that's, where I, that's where Tom becomes no longer tolerant. But more than that, and here's the question for today, one of the questions I want to ask is, Does our tolerance end and our intolerance begin in the same place that Jesus' does? Like, do our thresholds match? Does my threshold for intolerance, intolerance, you know, does it kind of match or come somewhere close to the way Jesus sees things? My question for this morning, I think I even have it on the screen, is are we willing to let Jesus be the judge of what we should tolerate and what we should not? So this is, this is a more basic question than what exactly is it yet? Should we tolerate or not? This comes to a more fundamental level. Are, are we even willing to let Jesus be the judge of that? This is where it gets tricky, right? Because... We all get into these conversations where we feel pretty passionate about what we should or should not be tolerant or in, you know, intolerant about. My question is not that per se. My question is, are we willing to let Jesus be the judge of that? It's a pretty fundamental question, actually. You could argue that that was the question that kind of surfaced way back in the garden. Are we willing to let Jesus or will God be the judge of what's right and wrong? And in the garden, in that case, both Adam and Eve said, you know what? We're going to be the judge. We're going to decide what's right and wrong. So this is a pretty fundamental question. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, the answer, by the way, should be yes. And if we're not followers of Jesus, well, you're still safe. You can decide. You can kind of try to figure this out, you know, kind of weigh the balance. 
But for those of us who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, the answer should be yes. But let's be honest, we struggle with that, right? Because we kind of want to retain the right to be the judge of what we should or should not be tolerant of, what we should or should not agree with. We want to retain the right. And so the fundamental question for today is, are we willing to let Jesus have that right? Are we willing to let Jesus be the judge of what we should be tolerant of and what we should not be tolerant of? Well, here in this message that Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum, we're going to hear how Jesus comes and speaks to a group of Christians who are tolerating something they should not have been tolerating, something that rubbed up against the threshold of Jesus on intolerance. So Revelation 2, you've already heard it read from Jesse, but we're going to walk through it a little bit today. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, we're going to stop right there. Remember how we've been noticing all along as we've been getting into these opening memos that Jesus will draw something from that original vision. That's why I asked Jesse to read that opening vision because these seven messages are always, Jesus is always rooting something, particularly around his identity as he speaks to an individual church. And in this church, he chooses the image of the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, it doesn't say in this part, it just says he has it. Now, is the sword... A warm and cuddly image, people. Does it make you just kind of lull off to sleep? Right off the bat, we're like, oh my goodness. He didn't talk about the robe or the hair, even the eyes. He talks about the fact that he has a sword. And the sword is an image of judgment. Yes, an image of protection too, and that's what's going on as we see. But, but it's an image of judgment right off the bat. And in your connect groups this week, those of you who are in connect groups, you're going to have an opportunity to explore more of some of this sword image and the connection to the Word of God. But here we see right at the start, this message that Jesus is delivering has a judgment element to it. Something we all love to hear. I'm sure they did too. They were gulping at this point, I'm sure. Well, Jesus goes on. He says, I know where you dwell, or I know where you live. Remember how every letter Jesus says he knows something about them? Five of the letters, or five of the messages, sorry. He says, I know your deeds, and then two others, he says something different. In this one, he says, I know where you live, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Wow. Yet, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Notice the dwelling bit here. Notice how Jesus is saying, I know the kind of place that you are living out your faith in me, and I'm aware of your context. I'm aware of your circumstance. And yet, what's good about it is that they're holding fast, right in the middle of this spiritually oppressive city. What we know about Pergamum is that it was a city that was not only up in a high rock, but then even above that loomed another thousand feet of a a kind of a rocky hill, and it was just dotted with temples and altars to to many, many different kinds of gods, but in particular to Zeus and to, I can't say it properly, Asclepius, the healing guy with serpents and stuff. Yeah, him. And so this this, uh, hillside kind of towered over the city. And everything they did, their whole life was lived under the shadow of these temples. Maybe that's what Jesus was referring to 
We don't exactly know, but Jesus is so strong here in telling his people not only he knows where they live, but in particular the type of authority that Satan has in that city. The word throne is one of the most often used words in the Revelation, usually referring to God's throne, God's authority. But here, Jesus is saying, I know that you live where Satan's throne is. Jesus is aware of the kind of opposition that raged in this city as God's people, as his people, sought to live faithfully in that context, that they were, they were under the shadow of satanic authority, that they were living out and holding out the light and, and being uh, God's witnesses filled by the Spirit, but in, in an incredibly difficult circumstance. And one of their faithful had already been killed, right? And we can, we can kind of see how more are yet to come. I think it's important to pause right here and recognize that Jesus can say the same for us, right? He can look us right in the eyes and say, I know where you live. I know your street address, right? I know your zip code. Postal code. We're in Canada, right? He knows where you live, which means he knows your context. He knows that maybe you have a difficult family situation. Maybe there's a lot of conflict in your family between your teenage kids and you. Maybe you're, maybe you're working it out as a single parent or, or maybe there's a lot of conflict between you and your spouse and, and there's kids in the mix or there's kids not in the mix. Maybe your family situation is very, very difficult. And Jesus says to us, I know where you live. I know where you are. Maybe it's your work context. Maybe you hate your work. Maybe your work sucks the life right out of you. Or maybe there's conflict going on there and you're not sure if you're going to last any longer. Or maybe you're in a type of, of, of circumstance where you've, you've been living out your faith and you've been attempting to remain strong, but you're facing a lot of battle, a lot of pushback. Maybe you're struggling with temptation. Uh, maybe you, you kind of know what you should do, but you know that if you, if you do that thing, if you, if you choose the right action, you know what kind of difficulty that's going to create in your life. I don't know, but Jesus does. This is the very significant thing that comes out in all these memos, is that Jesus looks each one of us in the eye individually and as a church, and says, I know where you live. I'm aware of your circumstance. I'm aware of the context in which you are attempting to be faithful. And he sees you holding fast in the middle of that. That's an incredibly encouraging word, isn't it? That Jesus takes into account all, that it, all the forces that are against us, and he says, but I can see that you're holding fast to my name. It's a beautiful image. Jesus sees all of that. He knows their pressure. He knows their context. He knows that they're, they're attempting to be faithful witnesses in an oppressive, destructive environment where the authority of Satan seems to have just no limits. The, the, the lives of the people around them, the, the social circles, the economic realities, the, 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 the political powers, the religious powers, it seems like Satan just has an unfettered access to what's going on. And yet they're there declaring that Jesus is the true Lord, that Jesus has true authority, and it brings him directly into conflict with the powers of the evil one. And like the Smyrnans that we learned about last week, these Pergamum Christians have been bearing up under that weight of persecution holding fast to Jesus. But that's not all, right? Jesus sees the good. He sees the faithfulness. And one of the wonderful things we hear in Revelation is that he truly affirms that in us. That he looks into our reality and he doesn't just let the negative things or the struggles just kind of wipe out everything that's good that's happening. He looks at it honestly and he says, look, this is awesome. What you're doing here is good. 
Keep it up. But, out of His love for us, out of His love for the church, He also sees something else too. And He's willing to mention it. While they've been holding fast to Jesus in the midst of persecution, it's like there's something happening in a blind spot for them. While they're so focused on the onslaught from the outside, they have failed to recognize a threat that exists right within. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which we heard about in the first message. Okay, first things first. What is going on here? By the way, I hope we have time. We're going to do Q&A and discussion at the end. So if I gloss over something, we can hopefully pick it up a little later. So what's going on here? Basically it's this. Within this church in Pergamum, There's a certain group that's promoting a mixed lifestyle. Basically saying, you can follow Jesus as a faithful Christian and you can participate in the worship practices of of your culture. Of what's, what your friends are doing, what your guild is doing, what others are doing. And, and, you know, sometimes it's just pinching incense this and just naming the God at the start of the feast. You can do all those things and be a faithful follower of Jesus. This happened for, for, uh, formally at local temples, uh, happened at various uh, feasts that were explicitly to the gods. Everything was religious in that, in that uh, day. But they often included, we don't realize this, I think, when we, when we hear about it, but it all, these feasts often included explicit sexual acts. Usually sexual acts that were abusive to women and children and slaves. So this group within the church, was arguing for a flexible faith. You know, I I even think they probably argued for a sensible spirituality, advocating that you really could have it both ways. We'll come back to that. What's the deal with Balaam and Balak and the Knicks? Some of you never heard of these guys before. It's okay. Some of you are more familiar with it. Jesus is referring back to an old story in the Old Testament. And he's doing that to try to capture what's going on. He's using the Old Testament because that was a primary text for them. The Greek Old Testament for these Christians. That's what they would have read when they gathered together. And maybe a letter of Paul and the Gospel of John and a few other things. And so he, he appeals to this story to try to wake up these Christians and get them to pay attention. Balaam was a a seer, a prophet of sorts. And he was hired by a local king named Balak to curse the people of Israel. Uh, Really, as they're making their way to the promised land. And Balak promises Balaam a pile of cash if he just get up somewhere high and curse Israel. But every time Balaam tried to do it, like literally opened his mouth and tried to curse Israel, a blessing would come out. It's a bit of a comedy of errors, really. Uh, You've you got to read it. All, all the fun can be found back in the book of Numbers. But the story, it doesn't end there. Even though Balaam was unable to curse Israel directly, he helped King Balak hatch a plan that would destroy Israel anyway. He, he wasn't able to go the direct route. And so he went the indirect route. Do you see where this story's going? He used the same argument of sorts, that these folks in the Pergamum church were making, saying, it's okay, you can double dip. 
It's fine. You can totally be faithful to God on your Sabbath, your Sunday, whatever. You can totally be faithful to God in worship, and you can get a little action on the side. That's basically what he convinced, or was part of helping convince. And their mixed-up spirituality, this is back in Numbers, their mixed-up spirituality led them into destructive sin, and God judged them for it. It's pretty clear what Jesus is saying here. These Christians in Pergamum have been holding fast when it comes to pressure from the outside. And he affirms them for that. But they were ignoring destructive elements within their community. A specific group, and here's the wordplay I wanted you to see. The group that's holding to other teachings. And I like the contrast between holding fast or holding false. And that both of them are there in this community. And they're promoting this idea that you can pick and choose what you want to do or maybe you don't want to do or what's convenient or, let's be honest, that would really be difficult for my business if I did that or what to believe or what not to believe. In fact, I think this group probably promoted this mixed-up spirituality as a kind of Christian ideal. They probably argued for, you know what, we're free in Christ now. These idols, they don't mean anything anymore. We, we're just, now that we really understand freedom and grace, we're able to do all this stuff and it doesn't affect us, which Paul deals with in quite a few other places in the New Testament. It's nonsense. And Jesus wants them to know that. Jesus knows that they won't be holding fast to Jesus for long if there's groups within their community who are promoting false ideas, who are holding to false ideas about following Jesus. And so Jesus shows up to say, look, you've been doing great in this area, but you've been tolerating some stuff. You've been tolerating some some teaching, some promotion within your community that people can just have it both ways, that I don't really care if you slip down to the local temple on a Tuesday afternoon, sleep with a prostitute, offer a little gift here and there. I'm okay with that. Jesus is saying, I'm not okay with that. This is not good. You have passed my threshold of tolerance. And so Jesus says, and I I think this is powerful. He's done this to a number of these letters already. He says, therefore, repent. Remember what repentance means? Turn around, stop what you're doing. In other words, stop tolerating this group who's promoting this kind of idea in your community. An idea that is going to lead to the destruction of people's lives. The destruction of the church. If you don't, Jesus said. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I don't exactly know what this means. I just know it's not good. Now, what exactly does that mean? Like, How would that exactly happen, Jesus? I don't know, but it's scary to me. Jesus is so concerned about this church. He's so concerned about this community that he's willing to step in and in some way deal with this compromising group that is going to lead to an increasing rot within the church. And if they aren't willing to call out this group based on God's word, if they're not willing to call out the false teaching of this group, then Jesus warns them of judgment coming. So listen up, Jesus says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, how do we do that? How do we listen to this? How do we apply this to our lives? I think the first thing that struck me is that, as I titled this message, intolerance can be a virtue. Not ugly intolerance. 
I think one of the reasons why we pull back from even the idea is that we all know we don't want to become that guy, right? The ugly, graceless person that somehow thinks they're following Jesus and they're walking around with a bat nailing everybody. That's not the kind of of Christianity that Jesus wants us to be part of. It's not what he's doing here. And yet, there is things that go on that actually lead to the destruction of people's lives. And we need to be intolerant of ideas and teaching and ways that this gets promoted that will actually destroy people. Jesus is saying, you need to be intolerant about that. That's why he's so upset. Because Jesus knows that truth will always lead people to freedom. But false ideas, false ideas about him, false ideas about the world, false ideas about who we are, will always lead people to slavery. This kind of mixed-up spirituality that's being promoted in this church will ultimately lead people back into a life of slavery. Back where their lives are being destroyed, where their bodies are being abused, where their relationships are crumbling, where families are being broken up and men are ruined and the church is being destroyed and the name of Jesus is being drugged through the mud. That's what happens. And so Jesus is saying, you need to be intolerant of those kind of things. Intolerant of the kind of things that would, would actually destroy lives. What does this mean for us practically? I think we have to really remember here in the Revelation and, and particularly in this message that Jesus really loves us. Like he loves us. He loves us as his church. And he loves us so much that he's saying, I want you to deal with the stuff that will lead to your demise. I love you so much. I want you to be attentive to the ways that, that, that some false negative idea about Jesus will actually lead to people's destruction. So intolerance can be a virtue, but grace is the Christian norm. I would like to argue that intolerance comes out of grace. It comes out of understanding what true freedom means. It comes out of understanding how grace transforms lives. Because these ideas that were being promoted were not grace. I know that we are all scared of ugly judgmentalism. I think what keeps us straight here is that we remember that this is Jesus we're talking about. As we go through the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, we see how Jesus gathers people around himself who are a real mess, right? Broken people, sinful people, messed up people, confused people. Look around, people just like us, right? Hey, we are all broken and messed up and confused in some way. And those of you who don't think you are, are even worse off than the rest of us. Right? Because that's the kind of people Jesus hung out with. And who was upset with all the messy people that hung around with Jesus? Religious folk, right? Folks that didn't think they had any need of Jesus. And of course their need was even greater. This is what Jesus was. So when we start talking about intolerance or tolerance or grace or or judgment... We have to remember that this is Jesus, who was, if I can say it, incredibly tolerant about our mess. As people were walking toward Jesus and are leaning in close and are wanting to understand more and are struggling and trying to figure out, Jesus, man, he had all the time in the world for people like that. But in order to protect them, in order to protect the church, what he's not tolerant toward is people coming along and saying, 
Oh, you can go back in and play in the, the danger zone that you just came out of. You can go back into the muck that, that I saved you out of. You can go back into the bondage and do all the things. You can abuse other people or let yourself be abused as though that's not going to hurt you. Jesus said, are you kidding me? I'm calling you out of that. And so this intolerance that Jesus has toward this kind of destructive teaching and ideas is an expression of the grace of Jesus toward us. The long and short of it is, we need to let Jesus dictate for us as a community ways that we need to be tolerant of each other, grace-filled toward each other, and yet radically, even brutally intolerant toward the promotion of ideas that would actually destroy our lives. Well, let's talk for a bit. What kind of questions does this raise for you? Um, Ethan's going to wander around with a microphone. And I would ask you to speak in the microphone because for two reasons. One, some of us are hard of hearing. We'd like to hear your question. And then the second one is it gets on the recording. So then it makes more sense for those who are listening. So what kind of questions uh, maybe come up for you out of this passage, things I've lost over? Um, what kind of uh, comments would you like to add to this? This is an opportunity for us to just talk for a few minutes about the implications of letting Jesus be the judge of what we're tolerant of and what we're intolerant of and how we move forward. Questions, thoughts? Put your hand up. Ethan will come to you. I didn't preach that well. Mish. Um, So I feel like this passage is really referring to the stuff that's inside their church. Um, But does that refer to the world, too? Like, I guess I feel a little bit confused about that. Thanks, Mish. That's excellent. Thank you for that. And you're right. One time in um, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul explicitly told the Corinthian church, Essentially, stop being all worried and judging people outside the church. All the mess that's going on out there. He says what you need to be conscious of is each other. And he actually talks about, uh, Andy Stanley says, judge the believing, not the heathen. (laughs) That's Andy Stanley's version of that text. But did you get that? Judge the believing, not the heathen. But uh, the the idea there being uh, there's a lot going on, and sometimes we can train our intolerance on things that are out there. What Jesus wants us to be super attentive about is essentially we're witnesses out there pointing people to Jesus. In here, we want to grow in grace. And what I love about this passage is it's not saying walk around and beat these people with a stick. Become a super rigid religious group. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying, do you realize what these ideas will do to people's lives? And you need to deal with that in the church. And uh, particularly the, the teaching and the ideas of this mixed up spiritual. So thanks for that, Mish. I think that we often get confused as Christians of training our intolerance and our judgment uh, to people who don't claim to follow Jesus. There's, 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 they're, not, you know, they're not saying, I'm under the authority of God's word or I'm under the authority of Jesus. The, the, the trickier thing there is, and this is, I think, why we do it. It's so much easier to point our finger at someone way out there. And it's much, much more difficult to have a conversation with each other about something difficult or a way that uh, I need to ask forgiveness or confronting one another over a blind spot. That's so much more difficult. And that's not specifically, I think, what this passage is talking about. That relates, of course. But uh, specifically, we need to be rigorous pursuers of the truth within our community, following Jesus, fixing our eyes on him and not allowing those false ideas to destroy us. Thanks. 
Other questions or thoughts or comments? Nadine. What do you think about Christians celebrating Halloween? Oh, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> I think it's an issue of conscience. And Christians need to decide. I think it's, for me, it's, uh, there's a lot of areas where um, it really, uh, people need to wrestle through things by themselves, not by themselves, in community, just talk, discuss. But we need to allow people to make different decisions on I mean, there's a lot of things we could, we could talk about in that area. Where, and, and, of course, people who feel very, very strongly about yes or no on these will often feel like, no, that's not an area that we should allow for conscience. But I think we should. I think there has to be freedom to allow for differences of understanding. Let's seek to understand one another and why we would or would not do things. But we need to allow for a variety of, of decisions to made in that. I think... Uh, that, that's true of uh, drinking alcohol. That's true of whether you read Harry Potter or not. I mean, that's true of lots of, lots of things. Um, we need to allow for freedom in, in, within the bounds of, of conscience on, on things that are, in my opinion, less clear. And, of course, some of you are probably upset with me right now already. I apologize for that, but I think it's an area of Christian conscience. Yeah. Harvey? Okay, I agree with what you've just said, mm-hmm. for sure. But where is the line? Yeah. And uh, this is what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. You know, where is the spot where you, there has to be that line drawn? Yeah. And we have so many things in our culture now mm-hmm. that fit into that gray area, that the gray area has actually gotten huge. Yes. So I'm wondering, has the church been just too tolerant? And I think, Arlene, absolutely in some ways we have. I think, here, here's my struggle. I think it's both. Like, I think the irony is, I think that we, and this is why I think that that's why the basic question for me is, are we willing to let Jesus dictate or, ju- you know, be the judge? Because I think there's areas where we have become if you, too tolerant, and then there's areas that we're just way too intolerant. Like, I think it, it, both, I think those both exist. Um, I mean, one of the, well, I want to get into that. A lot of times people their experience of the church, now I'm talking about people who are outside the church, their experience of the church experientially is that they're very intolerant. And I think, well, that's, that's not Jesus, because people surrounded Jesus who were really, really messed up. They obviously didn't experience intolerance from Jesus on that level. And yet, somehow they heard truth and they followed Jesus. Um, so I think, I think the answer is, of course, yes. There's areas we've been too tolerant and areas we've been too intolerant. And on different subjects, we're going to have to try to discern where that line is. I think we do that in community, by the Spirit, with the Word of God in hand. But I do still think there are going to be areas where we're going to have to acknowledge. And I say that because in Scripture, Paul, for example, the big, big issue in Paul's day uh, was, do you eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not? And it really rose because the early, earliest church was all Jewish, and then Gentiles started coming in. And then there became churches that were a mix of Jew and Gentile, some more Gentile, some less. Uh, but the big deal was, I've been a faithful Jew, and I've been kept kosher all my life, and didn't work on Sabbath, and blah, blah, blah. And, and now, I'm sitting across from my Gentile brother in Christ, and he's chowing down on a ham sandwich. What do I do with that? Because my, uh, this has been what I've understood faithfulness to God to be all my life, and yet, 
for him. And so then there was pressure that started to come where, where um, some started to say to the Gentile brother, you know, I understand you were saved by grace, but to really truly be faithful now, you need to circumcise your kids. Maybe you need to get circumcised. Yeehaw. And you need to, um, you know, stop eating ham. And, you need to, and, and Paul just went wild on that. He said, no, uh, you can't do that. Um, if you started in the spirit, you're going to complete in flesh and all that stuff. But, but the, the, the point he's, he comes down to, Romans 14, is he'll say to people, look, one person keeps one day special to the Lord. And another person regards every day alike. They each got an answer to God for that. And, and some guy eats meat and some guy doesn't. And so he allows, in that context, he says, look, it's a personal decision. He even says to them in, in one part, make the decision and then shut up about it. Don't go talking about it to everybody else. It's a personal decision. Leave it there uh, for the sake of love. Don't get all tripped up on this stuff. And so he allows, in, in Romans 14, he really, and in other places, he allows for some differences. And, and I think people really living out of their conscience, like what is right for them, and it's tricky, right? Because what's right for them, but they've got to come to some recognition that, and I'm not talking about a, a relativism that says everything's up for grabs, but somehow in here to be able to say, I wouldn't feel right eating the ham sandwich, but I've got to acknowledge that my, it's okay for my brother to do that. And, and so there's some allowance in, in how we live this out in, in areas that are not as, as clear, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But it is something we only hammer out in community, I think. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Less. This might be way out, and I don't know. Uh, when you're talking about the swords from his mouth. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Is, uh, is that what we would call a sharp-tongued woman today? Yes, <laughs> you are a braver man than I. Jackie, you're supposed to filter this kind of stuff. Do I even answer that, or do I just let it go? We're going to see this sword image in the mouth come up again from Jesus at the end, in chapter 19, when he's riding a horse and he's bringing, bringing judgment. But it is a powerful image of a word that cuts. We'll leave it at that. Well, listen to this closing promise. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious, whatever translation you're reading, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Guys, I'm going to be really honest with you. The commentators have many, many, many different ideas about what that means. It's pretty obscure. The hidden manna less so. It probably refers to the pot of hidden manna that was put in the Ark of the Covenant. It's not referred to in the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews talks about it. And it probably represents the provision of, of, of Jesus, the provision of God uh, for the people as they're in a, a wilderness time. Okay? So you could think of it as the promise of Jesus' presence with them. The white stone business, there's literally like nine different, fairly valid possibilities of what this could mean. Uh, do I even dare get into it? You'll probably want to get into it maybe in your connect groups. I'm sure your leaders will love that. <laughs> um, 
everything from a, a white stone that was given uh, when a, a person was declared innocent in court to a token for a special event to a kind of like a, a BFF locket. You take a white stone, I write a little name on one side and the other name on the other, and I'd break it in half and I'd give Roger the, the one with my name on it, and I'd carry the yeah with <laughs> Roger's name on it as a symbol. And when we come back together, we put the, you did this when you were 13 years old, didn't you? Little lockets, yes. And, and so it, mean, it could mean that. It, it could mean uh, referring to the uh, two gemstones that the Old Testament priests carried, the, the umen and the ermen and the thumbin, whatever. It could refer to a lot of different things. But what it surely does refer to is a type of, of, of uh, intimacy with Jesus where he says, look, I'm going to give you something special with a special name only known to you. And I'm going to sustain you with my presence. It's a beautiful promise, even if it's a bit obscure. And I think of it at the end because this promise to the church, this promise to you and I, the promise to overcomers, is this promise that Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the difficulties that you're operating under. I know the kind of pressure that you experience on a daily level to be a witness of mine. And I want to let you know that not only do I know where you are, I am present to sustain you. I'm right there in the mix. That's the part of the apocalypse. And I'm promising you that as you come through this, you will know my presence. You will know an intimacy with me that is beyond imagination. And maybe that's why it's kind of obscure. Because maybe it's really just difficult to explain or put our finger on. But the promise is amazing. That Jesus knows what we're going through. And as we come through that, he says, you're going to know an intimacy with me you're going to know my presence in a way that you had never known it before. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a beautiful promise? Well, here at the end of our message, the challenge for us is, do you believe that Jesus has the right to tell you what you should be tolerant about and intolerant about in your own life? Because let's be honest. We all have a really high tolerance threshold for ourselves. Don't we? It's always higher than the threshold we have for others, or usually is. Some of us have a problem with really beating ourselves down. I understand that. But what we want to come to is, as we let the Word of God be shaped in us, as we hear Jesus speaking to us, we let Jesus be the judge. We let Him take His sword, as it were, and cut away the junk to protect us from evil to clear up what's wrong, to be the judge in our lives of what is right and what is wrong, to be the judge in our community of what is right and what is wrong, so that we become a truly grace-filled community of Jesus, where we're saying to people, you can be broken, you can be messed up, you can, you can wonder where your head has been, it doesn't matter, you are welcome in the community of faith, you're welcome in the community of Jesus, that we're all sinners just trying to follow Jesus. And we're experiencing His grace in one way or the other. This is the kind of community that we are. And because we care for each other so much, we're going to rigorously pursue truth. Which means we can be pretty intolerant about ideas that will lead to you being abused. Because we love you. So are we willing to let Jesus be the judge in our own lives, in the church? That is our desire. At the Erickson Covenant Church, that is our desire. That we would continually come under the word of God and let Jesus show us how he wants us to live.
I hope that we're willing to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a powerful image of you with this sharp, double-edged sword coming out of your mouth. Your word that cuts through all the junk, that clears the way, that deals with enemies, that brings judgment on things that would enslave us. That you, the one who calls us to new life, to follow you, to be faithful, cares so much that you're willing to step in. We're thankful for that. And I pray that as a community, we would be open to your leadership in our lives. That as a church, we would be letting you be the judge. Letting you determine how we see right and wrong. What we tolerate and what we don't. And would you, by your Spirit, fill us with your grace and with your truth. In your name we pray. Amen.